Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for Muncie First Brethren Church with Pastor Jim Garrett. This week we continue our series in the Gospel of John. Today we learn of the context of Jesus' first recorded miracle of turning water into wine. Here's Pastor Garrett. This journey through John is fascinating. Just, just kind of... Uh, um, won't say seeing it with different eyes, but but allowing it to show up again. You know, it just keeps uh, hitting in fresh ways, and that's that's what happens when you go through the Bible. That's what happens when you study Scripture and and have devotions. Is that you can read a familiar passage, but there will be a new lesson, new application, where where God shows up and reveals Himself. Uh, as, as being a very real part of, of what is happening with you and, and where he is leading you and how he is shaping you for his purpose. Because it's not just a revelation of his will, it's a revelation of, of how that will is applied and, and, and then uh, worked through us. And so it becomes important for us to look at it that way. And so that has indeed happened. So as we go into this chapter 2 and we see the beginning of, of what we'll say is the, the public ministry of Jesus, we, we encounter the first sign that John said were given throughout. There are seven of them throughout the passages of, uh, of uh, John's book that, that reveals the fulfillment of God's plan and God's promise through the person of Jesus. He wants us to know and then believe that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah, the promised one, and that through him we have life. And so he's very, very adamant as he he goes through these scriptures, we're going to see some themes that emerge, and and one of them is is going to be uh, uh, early on in these chapters, the idea of Jesus being the the water from which we have life, the life-giving water that doesn't end. And, and it's interesting when we look at this first sign, the turning the water into wine at the wedding of Cana, we don't have a lot of description of, of what lessons are attached to this sign. We don't have, you know, a, a lot of that extra um, insertions of, you know, this was done for this reason. And it's for that reason that many just kind of want to be skeptical about it happening at all. In fact, it's, again, one of those stories where, the, the modern skeptic, and some not so modern, have tried to suggest that this was nothing more than a parable that Jesus taught and that John uh, translated it into a, a real event. Uh, you have others that have said, well, it's nothing more than uh, a, a kind of stealing from Dionysus, the, the, the Greek god that was the god of basically wine and being drunk, and and so that Jesus doing this was nothing more than trying to uh, parallel that story. Uh, that's exactly where the similarities end, is that it includes wine. And beyond that, there are no parallels or similarities to anything that Dionysus claims or uh, was claimed for him. And then that yet there are others that just, you know, say it's a fabrication, that there was no wine, that this was nothing more than a joke. And literally, this is one of the theories that, that when, when the stewards, the servants took to the, the, the master of the banquet this water and said, here, this is wine, he, that he, his statement about it being the best wine was nothing more than sarcasm. And 
I don't care what, what you read in response to that, they're like, where did someone come up with this? That's what they're wanting to say. They don't say it just that way, but they're like, this is so far beyond the, the realm of, of something that could be drawn from this. It's, it's just kind of ridiculous. But that's the, that's the kind of world in which we live. They want to ignore the signs that are just presented as, in this case, just a simple expression of something that Jesus does. We don't even know how it impacts everybody at this event. The only ones that would seemingly know what, what happened is maybe the mother of Jesus, Mary, the, the servants, the stewards that were instructed to do what was done and know, they know that the water that was put in the pots came out as wine, and then apparently the disciples at the end. But all we have as a summation is that the disciples saw the glory of Jesus and they believed in him. Their faith in him was substantiated. For me, as I, again, go through a story like this, I'm amazed at how simple it is, and it, it lends itself to the, to the fact that there's integrity in this story, simply because of the way John tells it. We're not told how it happens. We're not told all of the little nuances or details or anything. We're just, it's straightforward, and it's presented that way without any agenda seemingly fulfilled. And yet, again, there are those that would say that John should, he, he's too close and, and, and represents a biased view of what's going on. That's where the whole theory that he turned a parable into a real-life event comes from. For us, it just reminds us that John was a witness to the revelation of, uh, of the fulfillment of God's plan in Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see unfold. It raises some questions. We, we uh, are free to, to kind of look at them, but, but it seems to convey what, what this message from here throughout the, the uh, end of chapter 4, and that is that the shadow is gone and the substance has come, as Paul says in Colossians. Everything that was just a foreshadowing of, of God's plan and purpose and promise is now fulfilled. And, and so latch on to Jesus. That's the whole question and call to discipleship. Be defined by who he is, because that's what God promises. He's not giving a religion. He's not calling you to a, a, an ideology or just a belief system. All of those things are attached to it. He's calling you, however, to a relationship through a person, that that's the substance of it. And if you go to the attachments without the substance, that's all you're going to have is the attachment. And so you have a lot of misplaced ideology, religion, or, 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 or even the, the, the accoutrements, all the things that are added to that, the, the, the byproduct, if you will. John is inviting us to see Jesus, the fulfillment. So in the wedding, you, you'll see that the water's put in these purification jars, but you're introduced to the one who actually purifies. The water is turned to wine. There's, so, so the water isn't anything special. It's in, these, it's in these vessels, but it's what Jesus does with it that makes it special. 
And that's exactly the message. And whether John uh, explicitly says it or not, it is implied within the, the, the whole story is that that's what he promises to those who trust him, who believe in him. In the latter part of the chapter, we'll see the temple where God takes us from the shadow of a place to a people, a person. It's to be a place of prayer, which by its very, very concept is, is this idea of communication, speaking to and listening to God. So God's design has provided for that relationship, marked by that communication, not ceremony. And when they try to make it easy for everyone, Jesus says, but you're missing the point. God has presented himself. He's not presenting the performance. The temple was never meant to be a place where they just focused on the things done there, but the one who said, this is where I am, I am providing the, the meeting place so that you understand when that becomes you. And that's the transformation is that the temple of God goes from, and Paul understood this, it goes from this physical structure that was destroyed in 70 AD into the living structure that is people. And that that's what God designed. So Paul will say, don't you know that you are a temple of the living God? A temple of the Spirit of God that he lives within you? And so this transformation, the, the shadow into the substance. In chapter 3, we'll see the same thing. The ceremony, the, the religion of Nicodemus coming and saying, we know you're a man sent from God. No one can do what they what you do unless that were true. And Jesus just says, hey, you have to be born again, Nicodemus. It's not about what you think you know. It's what, a, it's what is being revealed to you as truth. And, and, and so a couple of our songs alluded to this fact as well. Whether or not the world believes it, with all the things that are going on, it's the song that rings true. And it is truth regardless. So that when Jesus is presented, God is saying, you, and, and this is echoed in the Old Testament, or actually is the source of this echo, the nations rage against God. They want to free themselves of, of his chains and the chains of the Son because they realize that regardless of what they do with him, it doesn't change the fact that that's who he is. It is truth. It is absolute and it's not just relevant or relative because I choose to believe. It's true regardless. That's the definition and the nature of truth. And God operates within those parameters. So Nicodemus needed to, to see the shadow of, you know, we, we come and we give to God rather than seeing how does Jesus say it? For God so loved the world that he gave. And so the shadow is this idea of giving to God, and the, the substance is, no, God is going to give to you. That one just kind of flips everything upside down. Then the water at the well with the, the Samaritan woman. Drink from the water from the well, Jesus says, you'll be thirsty again, but if you drink of the water that I give you, then you never thirst. And this motif of the living water, we'll see it again in John chapter 7. And then the goal of the Father's heart. The shadow picture is often represented by this idea of how do we capture the Father's heart. But the substance is how 
will the Father capture yours. He's seeking for those hearts that worship him in spirit and truth. And those, that language of worship, you know, she asked Jesus, we worship on, on Mount Gerizim. That was the history of the Samaritans. And so their location for worship was on, on the mount away from Jerusalem. Said the Jews worship there. Who's right? Who's doing it right? Who's giving the right thing to God? And Jesus says, you know, regardless of what that answer is, this is what the Father wants. He doesn't care where you are. He cares about whose you are. And so it didn't matter whether you were Jewish or Samaritan or Gentile or any whatever other heritage might be available. It's do you know him through the person of Jesus. So this theme of shadow picture and substance runs until the end of chapter 4. It continues, but, the, but, but there is a shift at the end of chapter 4 into chapter 5 with some of the conversation. Jesus becomes a little more direct and explicit in describing himself uh, to, to the religious leaders at that point. So as we see this unfold, let's look at this picture that unfolds at the, at the wedding at Cana. And again, this third day, the day motif, this, this isn't, we know that there are some other days in there, but this probably means the third day from this last event with Nathaniel that we saw described at the end of chapter 2, who was from Cana, by the way. And so this wedding is in Cana. We can, we can assume some things here, just some context and background for a wedding in, in the first century Middle East and, and Israel in particular. There, it was a very important event. It was something that, that could last as long as a week, and it was a grand celebration that was consummate, the consummation of a, a very serious betrothal period. An engage, we call it engagement, but they took it a little more seriously. When you became committed to someone and said, I want to marry you, it was, it was uh, their, their view of that was much more serious, much more substantial than we're used to. And that's why even when we see the description of Joseph and Mary, and Mary was found to be a child, Joseph was going to use the language of divorce to break the betrothal, to, to break the engagement. That's what it took. The commitment was a life and, and all that they were to one another. The groom had the primary responsibility for planning this party, this celebration. So much so that if the groom, it, it, was, it, was a, it would be a very egregious mistake to have this celebration and to run out of wine. In fact, they have found evidence that it was quite possible for the bride's family to sue the groom if he didn't provide an adequate party. Boy, my mind went with all kinds of things with that one. I thought, boy, that, that opens up the door for a lot of things, doesn't it? But it was that kind of event, and the groom had that kind of responsibility. So he had people there who would help him, and this, this master of the, the banquet that we run into, he was, he was there to make sure that that happened. And that's why when this good wine was given to him, he went to the groom and said, 
Way to go, man. I thought you had the good stuff early, but this is the good stuff. You saved it for the end of the celebration. So all of this was going on. It was very important. We can also assume that, that the, the mother of Jesus, Mary, and, and this was probably a family friend, a relative, uh, um, perhaps, because they were all invited to be there. And so with that going on, and Mary seems to have some, invest, some vested interest in, in what was going on because she's the one that goes to Jesus when this terrible thing has happened. So let's see how it's described by John. And he doesn't give all those details, but does uh, help us see that uh, uh, that, was, that was the approach to all of this. So it says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. That's where you see those connections, a very important event, and you're not invited unless there is some, some uh, known connection. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to Jesus, they have no more wine. We know Jesus' response, woman, why do you involve me? What is that to me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. We'll just stop there for a moment and look at some of the things here. So again, this important event, they've come to this place where uh, within their culture to, to not have uh, um, a quality wine available was a big deal. So when they run out, Jesus, the, or, uh, Mary goes to Jesus and says, this is a problem. Now, it's interesting, we don't know. There is a, there is a, a second century tradition that, that Jesus at one point in his childhood had taken clay pigeons and turned them into real pigeons and, and, and they flew away. We don't know what he did before this time as a child and what Mary knew about him, what she had witnessed or seen. We don't know any of those things. I, I mean... So, so I like to be um, weird in just speculating what his childhood might have been like. I, I think it is fascinating just to imagine because I, we, start, we see him at age 12. We know that he's in the temple and that he's got knowledge that the, that, that the religious leaders are going, okay, um, gather around this 12-year-old kid because he knows things. They understood and they saw, and again, we don't know the details of what he said. We just know that he had garnered the attention of, of those religious leaders. That's where his mom and dad found him when they were on their way home in their caravan and re realized that they didn't have, have uh, young Jesus with them. Yeshua was, was not anywhere to be found, and when they go back, they find him in the midst of these religious leaders, and, and they seem to be hanging on every word. But we don't know much else. So, but Mary knew something about Jesus and, and knew that, that there was some capacity here to change what was going on. I don't think she had any idea what exactly he could do. And Jesus responds to her, this, this, by the way, this uh, approach of woman or dear woman, it's, 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 not a, it's not a slam. It's not as generic as we might think of it. If we said woman to someone, 
no one thinks that I've just received a compliment or you've received a compliment if you're called woman, right? You, you, you know, when I'm at home and if I want Elizabeth's attention, I don't say, hey, woman. That's not a good thing to do, right? <laughs> See, confirmed it. She agrees that that's not good. So we, we kind of have a negative connotation to it. I will say that even in the first century, from all that we see, it's, it's fairly neutral. It's not necessarily a compliment, but it's not a slam. And I think that Jesus here, as we see throughout uh, the interactions with his mother, even at the, even at the cross when we see this uh, at the end of the book, we see him committing this woman to the beloved disciple, John. It's not, it's not meant to be a slam, but I do think it, it helps us with hindsight to understand what he was saying to Mary. There was, Mary was in the same category as anyone who would know Jesus as the Messiah. It's... it's there is one tradition within a religious context in our culture where this is one of the places where Mary is introduced as um, this major primary person in the life of Jesus of importance because Jesus only did what he did because Mary instructed him to do so. And you kind of can guess where, where that ends up, that she ends up being the means through which this miracle happens, it's where one of the doctrines of the um, perpetual virginity of, of Mary arises and she becomes the co-redemptrix and, and you just have all kinds of things attached to that. That's not here at all. Jesus says this is not the time. Now, we understand, again, with hindsight, in part what he was saying. That would have been a very confusing thing, I think, to Mary, if she understood him to have, to be the, the, the uh, one that was promised, she, remember all the backdrop of what happened during his birth and the things that she was told, both by the angel and, and Simeon and, and, and uh, um, oh, her name just left me, Han Anna, that's right, Anna and Simeon, when she, he was taken at the time he was dedicated um, in the temple. And those words were very intimate, but an expression of what God had promised. So, so with all of that going on, she had some idea that Jesus was capable. But, and we know that too because she's going to tell the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. But we also know that Jesus understood. Even as we see these things happen in the, in the next few chapters, he's going to say... He's not going to commend himself to the care of men because he understands that they're not ready for this yet. They don't understand what it means for him to reveal himself as the Messiah. So his mother will say to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So nearby stood the six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. If you go to Mark chapter 6, I believe you'll see this description of remember when they were attacking Jesus that his disciples didn't wash their hands. And then there's a little description there by Mark of what the ceremonial washing was. There was, had to be enough water for everybody to have their hands washed clean. They washed utensils. 
that everything had to be done with this water that was deemed clean in order for those things to be fit for the, the, the uses and, and people were included. So six of these jars, each of them holding 20 to 30 gallons, that is a nice English translation of probably what was there. They were made of a type that didn't gather dirt, the stone versus clay. There's just a lot of, uh, a lot of things that we, again, don't know the details, but it, they understood. So when the, disciple, or when the stewards were told to go fill those pots, he then said to them, Fill the jars with water so they're filled to the brim, right to the top. And then he says, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. This is where the, the joke theory comes in, is that they were taking water and telling him it was now wine. And the master of the banquet goes, oh, and this is the best wine of all. When I read that, I thought, no, this is a joke about a joke, but it was serious. That's how they try to get away from this miracle of the water being turned into wine. So master of the banquet, he tastes the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from. The servants drawing the water knew. He called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. They don't care at that point, apparently, but you have saved the best till now. Just notice the plain, simple uh, description of this. Jesus does this, and, and, and there's this discussion between he and his mother, and we don't even know what impact it has on her. The servants know. That's all we are told about them. They know where it came from. But in the last verse of this paragraph, what he did in Cain of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, or he revealed his glory to his disciples, and his disciples believed in him. This is why John said he wrote the book. Wrote these things down. See, I, I know that from just a very naturalist kind of perspective, the the, the humanist approach to Scripture, you go, well, this, you know, this was just a story told to illustrate something. We're not told what that would be, so it's hard to really attach yourself to any of those kinds of descriptions. But John just tells us why this is here. And, and I think the deeper, the, the place where we kind of extrapolate these things is to see that, you know, these purification pots are just in this simple place where externally you try to make everything clean as you can because that, that somehow makes you fit to participate. Jesus takes those very things and, and turns this water into wine and, and, and himself provides what is needed at the moment. And, and John doesn't even explain that, but I think based on where we go from here, that has to be the case. What do you trust in for the place that God wants you to be? Who will provide what gives you life and then gives you a place before the Father? It's easy for me to go way too deep in what is a simple description but you have to connect it to what has gone before and, and what Jesus has, as he's been revealed to us as the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. 
the word became flesh to all who believed in him. They are given the right, the authority to be the children of God. If this is a sign that's inviting you to believe, what are you asked to believe in? What are you being invited to believe in here? Just that Jesus can do a miracle? No, because that's not even the word John uses. He uses the word sign to say that it's pointing to something else. And so you have to decide what is this something else. I think that's the problem for many who try to come up with a theory of, of, well, it wasn't really a miracle, it was water, it was a joke, or it was just stealing from some other legend or myth. Why? Because they know what's at stake here. I think that it, I think that it becomes clear to us. What does it point to? When, when we see the truth of who Jesus is being and, and, and unfolding right before us, you're not asked to believe in what he does with water. You're not asked to, to believe in what he does when he heals the blind man or when he, when he encounters those who are dealing with sin. You're not invited to come to the things about Jesus. You're invited to come to Jesus. And just the explanation with the disciples seeing his glory, it wasn't that they were so enamored with, and I'm not even sure the, the translation of that, the NIV tries to kind of gloss over a rough uh, um, grammatical structure here because it, just, it says he revealed his glory to them. And, and so whether that was, I, I kind of am struggling whether that was a separate event where he just says, look, this isn't about turning water into wine. It won't be about multiplying bread and fishes and feeding the 5,000. It will be about are you feeding on the bread and drinking from the living water that's provided in the person before you. Jesus is presented. It's his glory. And the sign aside, the miracle aside, if, it, if those signs don't point you to the right direction, if we get stuck on, well, I just, you know, I just, we've never seen this before. I've never seen anyone do this. So therefore, uh, and again, that, I hear that way too often from people who basically identify themselves as atheists. I've never seen a resurrection. I've never seen anyone. No one really believes that he turned water into wine or did any of those miracles. They allow the miracles to be a sticking point to see Jesus, and that's why John presents them. Because they're not proof of who he is. They're pointing to the proof of, and what's the proof of who he is? God's word. And we're going to see that unfold, the promise of the Father, the scriptures. And John's going to present that. Jesus himself in, in John 5, we're going to see this. This is why it shifts. Remember, he, he, he looks at the religious leaders and he said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life. The scriptures point to what? Me the life giver, and yet you want to do away with me. So if we don't accept the sign that says this is where, I'm, where it's pointing, 
And, and we know how difficult that can be. It's why when we talk about this thing of discipleship and, and believers and how we reach a world that's lost and in chaos right now, what are we going to be in that, in that world? Who are we pointing to? Some of us are afraid to point at all. Because anytime you make it clear that you're pointing to Jesus, you become the, the object of ridicule and being mocked and made fun of and, and, and disparaging things are said. It's, it's, a rough, it's a rough thing. But it's because the world is stuck on this idea that this, this person is not who he declares himself to be. And so I, I take them there. Well, who, who does he say he is? And of course, you know my favorite thing to say at the end of it, so you believe he died for nothing. He was an idiot. He was a fool. So when we, we see this simple expression that he did this in Cana of Galilee, which again is John saying it was a real place, a real thing. This isn't an allegory. This isn't an illustration. The first of his signs, he revealed his glory. His disciples put their faith in him. Are you his disciple? Will you put your faith in him? Do you see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ? Because there is no other place. All at the same time, Jesus is dealing with that ultimate truth, but he's also making it clear that he's the one that brings this idea of, of what it means to be right before God, why we deal with sin in our lives, because it doesn't, it doesn't fit what God has given as this, this reality of relationship, that when he cleanses the temple, that's going to be the same thing. They were just doing things that made it easy for people to do what they needed to do in the temple, and Jesus said, quit, that's not what this is about. So next week when we see that happen, again, we're going to see this. We have to draw the parallels. We have to draw the, 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 out the lessons that, you know, what, what does God expect it to be about? How do we pull those things in and allow that to be true in us? I, I love these stories. Let's stay on this journey and let's see the fullness of Jesus Ask that you see him with new eyes, a new perspective. John is not presenting a, a new ideology. He is presenting the person of Jesus as the object and the, and, and the foundation of truth, and then therefore our faith. And they go together. It's not true for you just because you choose to believe. You believe because it's true. And if we don't know how to communicate that, this is a time for us to begin to examine how we speak that, that, into that and lean into that a little more and are able to have that conversation. I love the way John does this, and I am learning new things. Let's continue to learn those together. What are you doing with Jesus? You believe in him? Trust him to be all that God has promised. That's the nature of God's grace. He gives. And so we see here 
that Jesus is the one that purifies. When we get to the temple, he's the one that provides the relationship that God is after. When it comes to the religion and, and all the things that we understand, he says, don't put me in a category. You have to be born again. This is why God sent his son, his only begotten son. Don't settle for the substitute. As Paul says, don't try to hold on to the shadows, but make sure that you're connected to the substance. He is the living water where we will never thirst again. Father, may that be true of us. Help us to have that view, that vision. Help us to, to, to understand the nature of this relationship that you have, have given through Christ Jesus. That indeed it is a revelation of your glory and your grace and that there is no other place to experience, see, or find, or live in, in its fullness apart from the person of Jesus, as we see this unfold with all the benefit of hindsight, with the whole story laid out before us, we still sometimes find ourselves struggling in accepting what you have said is true. So Father, where those barriers have been raised up, where those walls still exist, we pray with that those weapons that are divinely powerful, we pray against those walls. We pray that they would be torn down, that they're only, only tools of the enemy to keep us from knowing who you are. So, Father, we, we come against them, and we do that in the name of Jesus. Thank you for your love. Thank you for all that you are to us in, in your Son. And we give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name, amen.